A few weeks ago, I had the joy of getting to take my oldest son, Micah, on a, a trip for his 13th birthday. We like to mark moments in our family. And so uh, we went out to the border of Idaho and Oregon. There's this river called the Snake River that makes its way literally along the border of those two states um, through Hell's Canyon. And I don't know if you know anything about Hell's Canyon. It's a great place to take your kid for his birthday. I'm taking you into Hell's Canyon. Spoiler alert, I did not even know that was the name of the canyon until I booked the trip. Um, but uh, I knew I wanted to go down this river. We wanted to whitewater raft and kayak and fish and camp and all of these things. And Hell's Canyon, it, it's the deepest canyon in North America, 2,000 feet deeper than the Grand Canyon, which I had no clue. It's not nearly as wide, it's not as vast, but uh, as you get on the river, it's this cold, like really cold river water. And it's, it's just um, framed in on either side by these just gorgeous, like rugged, rough, harsh mountains. And I remember as we were getting ready to step in the boat to go down the river on the first day, I asked one of our guides, I said, why is this place called Hell's Canyon? And he, he laughed, he said, in about two hours you'll know. <laughs> like in about two hours you'll understand why it's called Hell's Canyon because uh, the, the terrain is unbelievably beautiful, but it's so harsh and rugged. And as the sun begins to come up in the mornings, the sun begins to radiate off of these rock faces. And as you're down in the depths of the canyon, it's like hiking or kayaking through the middle of a microwave. I mean, it is, it is so oppressively hot. It is, it is so warm. And so the first people that explored that canyon, they're like, this place only reminds me of one place. And, and, it, and it's hell. And so we, 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 we got into the kayaks and every morning we would, we'd kayak, you know, 12 to 20 miles down this river, taking in the scenery and at some point along the journey each day, we'd pull off on the side of the river and we would hike up on the side of these cliffs. And it was just breathtaking because you get up on the side of these cliffs and all along the ridge, you'd see unbelievable wildlife. We saw bear, we saw elk, we, we, we saw bald eagles, we saw mountain goats, we saw all of these crazy animals. But I remember this one day in particular, we got up on top of one of these ridges, this harsh, rugged place. And all around us on this rocky outcropping, were these beautiful wildflowers. And I remember just sitting on the, the edge of this ridge with Micah as we had exhausted ourselves climbing to the top of this scenic point in this really harsh, rugged space. And I said, dude, look at these flowers. I said, isn't it crazy the way something so seemingly fragile and beautiful can not only survive this harsh climate, but can thrive in the midst of it? And we're sitting there and we're, just, we're looking no longer at the mountains or the river, but these, these little flowers in the midst of this harsh high desert space. And, and the Lord just began speaking to my heart. He goes, Dave, isn't it amazing that something so fragile and beautiful could survive in the midst of an environment that's so harsh, so rugged? I started thinking about the animals that live there and I'm like, how do they survive here? As we kept kayaking and hiking over the days, we come across these little um, homesteads that, that folks in the late 1800s and 1900s, did any of you play the game Oregon Trail growing up? I'm just curious, raise your hand. Oh man, didn't you love that game? It's like, keep going or make camp. It's like, keep going like, every day. And like, you know, that game you used to play was the story of real people's lives. And they'd go from, you know, the East to the West and they'd lose half their kids to snake bites and dysentery and river crossing. And here Mike and I were in this canyon that the Oregon Trail led to and we'd see these homesteads and we'd read about these beautiful people who had left everything and we're sitting there and I go, man, the, the flowers and the wildlife and the people, it's amazing 
It's amazing that not only they could survive these harsh climates, but they could thrive right in the midst of it. And this is one of the things that the Lord just kept bringing up to my heart as I was sitting in that canyon over the course of three or four days, is that isn't it just like the nature of God to use harsh environments to create strong, beautiful people? Isn't it just like the Lord to use really harsh environments to create strong, beautiful people? And isn't it fascinating how the inverse is true that often comfortable environments create weak people? I would argue almost every person you admire in human history, every biography you love to read, every movie you love to watch is not the story of someone kicked up with their feet in a palace taking it easy, but it's someone that's learning how to survive and thrive and overcome in the midst of a harsh reality. Because God loves to use harsh realities to create beautiful, strong, resilient people. I think about being in the slums of India a few years ago, visiting our churches there and some of our church members whose homes are makeshift tents in garbage dumps and sitting in their home and the unmistakable joy of the Lord is in that house. And I go, wow, isn't it like the Lord to use such a hard environment to create such a beautiful, strong, resilient person? And there's so much that's jumped out at me as we've just kind of meandered our way through Daniel over the last six weeks together. But one of the, the things that has been front and center for me is the way that God has used the harsh spiritual climate of the, the country of Babylon to, fo to form a resilient, beautiful, strong remnant of people that are learning to bring glory to God in the midst of everything that they do. You know, Daniel and his friends, if you've been tracking with us over the last six weeks, as teenagers, they're taken captive out of their homeland. And over the course of about 70 years, you get to Daniel chapter six, and Daniel is now in his early 80s, despite all of the VBS skits where he was young and jacked and battling lions in the lion's den. <laughs> Daniel was in his early 80s and for 70 years had not just been surviving the harsh climate of Babylon, but was thriving in the midst of the isolation, the indoctrination, the re-identification, and he did all of it for the glory of God and all that he did. And sometimes we read these stories and they feel so familiar. The familiar feels like a fairy tale. Like, oh, it's cute. And he gets thrown in the lion's den. It comes out strong. We, we treat it like a fairy tale. This is a real guy, real place, real moment in history. And I believe the Lord wants to give us real wisdom for the moment that we find ourselves in as we find ourselves in a country where the spiritual climate is becoming harsher. I believe God wants to raise a church that's more resilient and strong and beautiful than ever before. And as the culture gets harsher, instead of us shrinking back in fear and getting weaker, we should go, now is the time that the Lord is rising us up. And I love so much of this story culminates for Daniel in his early 80s in Daniel chapter six. And there's a lot we could explore this morning, but here's what I wanna do. I wanna look at the way that all of the spiritual pressure of Babylon begins to, to coalesce uh, at Daniel's life in four distinct directions this morning. And then I wanna ask one simple question. And here's the question at the end that we're gonna wrestle with is, what is the secret to developing a resilient life that can thrive in the face of unshaking cultural pressure? And so as we're looking at the pressure that's coming at Daniel from all of these directions, I just want you to keep that one question in the back of the mind. So what's the secret here? Because I believe every one of us is gonna need to lean into it. So Daniel chapter one, we're gonna start in verse one together. Do a lot of reading this morning. Hopefully you have your Bibles. Verse one, it starts like this. It says, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom 
with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Now we can read that and just go, oh cool, Daniel's in charge again. Guys, this is crazy. An exiled slave from a minority people group in his early 80s is now being invited into a position of power again. This is not a normal story. This is a God story. And here he is leading under this new king named Darius who was uh, the, 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 the Persian uh, Medo king. And so you're going, wait, I thought we we're in Babylon. We're still in Babylon, same geography. But remember at the end of chapter five, a new country came in and captured Babylon. So Daniel has the same apartment with the new landlord, okay? And so some of you have gone through that before. You know, same job, new boss, same apartment, new landlord. Daniel is in the same geographical space, but there's a new country in charge. And the new king is a guy named Darius, verse two. It says, and so he set these administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so, listen to this, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. So they put out a surveillance campaign. They're going, is there anything in this dude's 60 years of political service that we can find against him? And so this is like what we see every election season. It's like, so-and-so is running for office. Here's who they dated when they were 15. And here's what she says, you know, um, verse five. But finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so this, this man, Daniel, this exiled slave, brought into this place of Babylon, this harsh spiritual terrain and climate. One of the things that we've seen about him over these 70 years is he keeps blooming like a flower on the side of a cliff. Nothing can seem to stop him. And at every turn, there's this pressure coming his way. And if you're the type of person that likes to take notes, here's the first thing I want you to take note of is, is that one of the ways that pressure was coming at Daniel was he had to figure out how to thrive in the face of vocational pressure. Vocational pressure. In the context of the nine to five, the day to day with a new boss and a new space, a new responsibility with a calendar that was not his own. And it's easy to just kind of wash over this, but I want you to just really put yourself in Daniel's shoes for just a moment. Uh, I, I believe uh, we don't have to use our imaginations much to just come to this agreement that this was not Daniel's dream career. Like I, I don't think Daniel in the fourth grade at Jerusalem Elementary went to career day and they're like, what do you wanna be? And I wanna be an astronaut. I wanna be a firefighter. I wanna be a police officer. I wanna be a nurse. I wanna serve crooked politicians in a foreign regime for 70 years. Like, not the dream. Not the destination. But Daniel knew if he wasn't just gonna survive the, the pressure of the day, if he was gonna thrive in the midst of it, it was gonna have to take place more than an hour and a half on the Sabbath. He's gonna have to figure out how to live for the Lord in the crushing pressure of the nine to five, new responsibility, new opportunity. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say Daniel probably didn't love all of his bosses, didn't like all of his responsibilities, didn't agree with all of his policies, didn't even line up with where the country was headed, but he knew that he did not talk himself into the position, so it was not his job to talk himself out of the position, but while he was there to bring glory and honor to God in the midst of it. And over and over and over, the, the Lord would bring him into these places. And don't you imagine he's going, how did I get here? 
How did I get here? In, in, in my almost 20 years of serving in some sort of pastoral ministry, without a doubt, every week I have a conversation with somebody in our church and in our ministry that's feeling vocational pressure. <laughs> She's going, how do I honor God here? If only I had more time here. If, if only I had a different boss here. And one of the realities of blooming like a flower wherever you're planted in the midst of a harsh, uh, harsh climate for the glory of God is learning how to navigate the reality of vocational pressure. I love the way that Daniel's described. It says in all of his work, he distinguished himself. He was marked by exceptional qualities. He was neither negligent nor corrupt. In other words, not only did he not do anything bad, he paid attention to everything that was good. He never punched out early. He always showed up late. He never cut corners. He never skimped on his vacation days. He never took the easy way out for a paycheck. He knew that working hard for a bad man still brought glory to a good God. He knew that he could work hard for a bad man and still bring glory to a good God. And he showed up day after day after day. I remember years ago talking to one of my friends and mentors who at the time was in his late 50s. And he was about four and a half years into a career that was not working the way he had hoped it would work. And uh, I think technically I'm like the oldest millennial, uh, like in the generation gap or whatever, you know? So in like the most millennial way ever, I'm like, dude, just quit your job and get a new one. And my mentor, he was so kind and loving. He looked at me and he's like, David, that's not the way it works. <laughs> he goes, the Lord put me in this position and he goes, and I'm gonna stay in this position and I'm gonna honor him hard in this position until the Lord removes me from this position. And as soon as he was done dropping the mic on me, I just thought of Colossians chapter three, verse 23, where Paul's talking to this church and he goes, some of you have masters and bosses that you don't like, but whenever you work for them, work as though you are serving Jesus himself. One of the, one of the life hacks that Daniel discovered in the midst of trying to thrive for the glory of God in the midst of, a, of an oppressive culture was he knew who he was really serving. He knew how to deal with vocational pressure. Guys, for some of you, for some of us, the most profound witness to the glory of God would be for you to show up at work tomorrow and to work your tail off for that job that you hate and that boss that you don't love a lot but to do it all as though you're working for Jesus and to trust it in his hands. One of the things that we see over 70 years is Daniel. He learned how to thrive in the, the face of vocational pressure, but it wasn't just vocational pressure. Keep going with me. You know, his, his coworkers, they see this. They're frustrated. They're jealous. You know, some of you have discovered like when you work hard for Jesus and there's favor that comes your way, all of your godless coworkers don't always go, man, we're so happy for your success. Just like you, you know, Daniel, he was living for the Lord and not everybody around him loved it. Listen to this verse six. So the administrators and the satraps, they went as a group to the king and they said, may, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators and prefects and satraps and advisors and governors have all agreed, apparently Daniel was left out of that meeting, that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any God or human during the next 30 days except to you should be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revealed. So King Darius 
put the decree in writing. Now, this seems so weird to us in our modern context, but it was not weird for them in the ancient world. When a new king or leader would come into power, they'd typically take like 30 days in extended inauguration. And a part of that inauguration, they would deify their leader. And you just kind of did it. You just showed up and you worshiped the new leader as God, just one God amongst many gods. And this was one of the primary lies of Babylon was that you could keep your faith in Yahweh as long as you just played along with the rules of the culture. And so they say, hey, king, it's your new inauguration. You're in power now, let's do this thing. You know, we'll worship you for 30 days. And pretty harsh, you know, like, hey, if nobody does it, can we just throw them in a pit with lions? Um, uh, pretty terrible, pretty, pretty scary. And the king goes along with it, verse 10. Now, Daniel, when he learned that this decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. The first pressure he was figuring out how to navigate was vocational pressure. Second pressure is he figures out how to thrive in a harsh circumstance as he learns how to thrive in the face of social pressure. So it's not just vocational pressure. Now it's, it's become social. The, the people around him who don't see life the way that he sees it, who don't believe the things that he believes, who don't want the same outcomes that he wants. All of a sudden, they're beginning to put pressure on Daniel because they're jealous of Daniel and frustrated about what God is doing in Daniel's life. And suddenly the heat of spiritual pressure is being turned up, but Daniel, like a flower on the side of a mountain in a harsh climate, keeps blooming. It's amazing to me. I think sometimes we read these stories and it's so easy to just write them off and go, oh yeah, his coworkers came against him. Have any of you ever been in an environment where the people closest to you turned against you intentionally? It's brutal. It's crazy how it brings out all of your insecurities and your fears and your worries. I remember my first like, career job, I was 21 years old, I got hired at a university. In no way was I qualified for that job. The grace of God, I got this job and I was pretty excited about it, but a couple of months in, some of my coworkers, uh, they, they were not happy that I'd gotten hired. And so a group of them went to the guy that had hired me and they said, we think you've made a bad choice. And I remember walking into the office suite where my office was as this group of my so-called friends were leaving after meeting with my boss and he lets me in on the conversation that they had just had, which I have no idea why he let me in on that conversation. And I remember just being overwhelmed going, everybody here hates me. <laughs> and all of the insecurity, the social pressure that comes when you realize the people around you don't want you there. So we talked about a few weeks ago with the fiery furnace. How do we keep showing up as the people of God when the culture needs us but doesn't always want us? And here Daniel's not just feeling vocational pressure. He's feeling the, the social pressure. His friends, his coworkers, his subordinates, they're, they're coming against him, not just to have him fired, but to have him put to death. I mean, crazy scenario. And how does Daniel deal with the social pressure? You can write a whole book on this. You just see it in the first 10 verses. He shows up and he just keeps engaging. Verse three, it says he distinguished himself. It didn't just distinguish himself. Look back at verse three. He distinguished himself among these people. He didn't call his boss and say, hey, I need to work from home forever now. He just kept showing up. He didn't play it safe, didn't shrink back. 
Didn't pull his punches. He goes, God has put me here. God will take me out of here if he wants to. But, but he keeps engaging in the midst of the social pressure, but he doesn't just keep engaging. Look at verse 10. He engages, I love this, with boldness, humility, and gratitude. Boldness. He goes home and he opens those dang windows towards Jerusalem and he goes, I heard the decree and this is what I'm doing. This was pre-social media. This was probably his version of social media. He's like, I heard the decree, here's my post. You know, he's like, open the windows. He's bold. He's not just bold, he's humble. What's he doing? What is he doing with those windows open? He is on his knees, pleading with the Lord for help. I love this, verse 10. Not just bold, not just engaged, not just humble, but filled with gratitude. Every day showing up giving God thanks. I'm like, what was he thanking God for? <laughs> God, thank you for taking me from my homeland 70 years ago. Thank you for allowing me to work for this terrible leader. Thank you for allowing me to be in this position of power once again. Thank you for bringing me to this only for there to be an edict against my life and my well-being. What was he giving God thanks for? He knew that everything he had, rich or poor, well-fed or hungry, everything was a gift of the Lord. How did he live in the face of vocational and social pressure? He kept engaging with boldness, with humility, and with gratitude. And like a flower on the side of a cliff in the middle of the desert sun, he just kept blooming where he was planted by the Lord. But like pressure always happens spiritually, it never stops, it just, it just keeps increasing. You see this third wave? Look at this in verse 11. It says, now then these men, once they saw that Daniel was praying, they went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. They said, king, didn't you publish a decree? Isn't somebody supposed to be killed if they don't do this? And then in verse 13, 14, and 15, they say, okay, if the decree still stands, then, then Daniel is not walking in obedience to what you've said. Jump down to verse 16 for the sake of time. And so when the king heard this, he gave the order and he had Daniel brought and thrown into the lion's den. And then the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. And then a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, just like the stone was rolled over the tomb of Jesus. So much we could talk about here. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the ring of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, once again, that's the resurrection story there. The king got up and he hurried to the lion's den and when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion's? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Look at that verse again. Because he had trusted in his God. Look at somebody next to you and say, because he had trusted in his God. Like something had happened. Something had happened in the pressure. The trust of the Lord had never eroded. Despite the harshness of his environment, the vocational pressure, the social pressure, if you're taking notes, and the third is even in the face of physical pressure. Daniel's life was marked 
by him coming face to face with the reality that sometimes the road of faith would be the road to the cross that would be marked by the reality of physical pressure. In Daniel chapter one, when he's a teenage boy, we have every reason to believe when reading the text that right after being taken into exile, Daniel experienced the physical pressure of being castrated. It's what they did to so many of these young exiles when they put them into the service of the king. And this is why I believe Daniel was put under the leadership of the chief eunuch because Daniel had been made a eunuch. He experienced the humiliation and the trauma and the pain of being physically tortured as a teenage boy. A couple of years later, as he's in the service to the very man that had tortured him, an edict goes out against his life that he'd be put to death and he has to face physical pressure there. 18 years later, as he's off on diplomatic assignment, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face the physical pressure of the fiery furnace. And you see this over and over and over and over. And here he is again in his early 80s, almost 70 years into exile. And he's facing not just vocational pressure, not just social pressure, but physical pressure. This is challenging in North America because most of us have never experienced this reality of the faith, but I do believe that many of us in our lifetime will face this reality. Because whenever you begin to really follow Christ, at some point, he indeed will introduce you to the cross. There is no Christ without the journey through the cross. And over and over and over and over in the midst of the vocational and the social pressure, Daniel had to come face to face with the reality that sometimes this becomes physical. Think about our brothers and sisters, you know, church planters all across the world. I talk to them every week that are in the face of unbelievable social pressure, unbelievable vocational pressure. And how do we feed our families? And unbelievable physical pressure. Just this past week, talking with one of our church planners who over and over and over, every time they push into a new village where there's never been a Christian church before, they face the threats against their life. And it's how do we walk in humility and boldness and gratitude, knowing that sometimes the deliverance comes in the lion's den and sometimes it comes after, after they have killed me, put me in a pit and Jesus comes back and resurrects me into his palace. As followers of Jesus, we never know when the deliverance will come, if it will come before the pit, in the pit, or after the pit. But here's what you know, is when you walk with Jesus in the pressure of a harsh culture, at some point, the God who delivers does indeed deliver. In Hebrews chapter 11, goes down the hall of faith. Some got out, some didn't, but all of them were awaiting, awaiting the eternal reality. And Daniel just knew this was the pressure in the nine to five, in the friend group, even at the cost of his life, and the Lord delivers him from the lion's den. And then there's a moment he comes out in verse 23 and verse 24, the, the king begins to change his tune. He takes all of the people that had falsely condemned Daniel and has them and their families thrown into the pit. That's a great VBS story that we'll deal with some other time, but he has all of them thrown into the pit because here's the reality is that all of us one day will stand before Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and in Christ, it'll either be deliverance or destruction, one of two realities. And Daniel, in Christ, he, he's delivered here. And this is the way the story ends, verse 25. And then King Darius wrote to all the nations and all the peoples of every language in all the earth. And he said, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear 
and reverence the God of Daniel. Listen to this, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Guys, I want you to just think about that. This pagan godless king just writes this worship song. It's like it came straight out of Bethel or Hillsong. It's like, it's like the living, enduring, all-reigning, all-sufficient king. It's an amazing proclamation of the reality of God that comes off the lips of this pagan king because he's had a front row seat to Daniel in the midst of the pressure. Just imagine this king sitting up on a rocky outcrop, seeing this beautiful flower growing in the midst of it, and he looks and he goes, how has this grown here? And the king's praise just begins to go to the Lord. And this is the, the fourth pressure I believe you see Daniel enduring. It's a little more subtle, but I believe he had to learn how to thrive in the face of generational pressure. Here's what I mean by that. Just that, that longing, that, that human longing in all of us to make a difference that goes beyond us. At some point, you begin to hit that halfway point in life. Some of you have hit it. A lot of you have not yet. I'm just telling you something weird happens when you kind of hit that halfway point in life where all of a sudden you quit thinking so much about your legacy and you start thinking about what it is that you leave to those that are coming behind you. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to just go at some point. Don't you wonder if Daniel just went, God, what's the point in all of this? King after king after king, regime after regime after regime. I'm faithful and yet I suffer and I suffer and I suffer. Don't you know at some point he just went, okay, God, is any of this making any difference? I love what my friend Lucas pointed out to me yesterday out of Psalm 90, a psalm written by Moses, this guy that was undeniably used by the Lord. You get to the end of Psalm 90 and two times at the end of that psalm, Moses goes, Lord, would you please confirm the work of my hands? Please confirm the work of my hands. It's what John the Baptist did in prison. He spent his life paving the way for Jesus. And then he sends his disciples to Jesus. Hey, can you please confirm that the labor of my life is not in vain? I think at some point, every one of us, the cry of the human heart becomes, have I used my one life in a way that matters? I believe the two most important days in any person's life is the day you were born and then the day you discover why. And I think it's often in the harsh environments where you begin to awaken to the reality that Daniel discovered, and that is that greatness is never, ever found in building a platform for yourself. Greatness is discovered when you give your life away to reflect the beauty of the, uh, beauty of the Lord. Daniel made a crazy impact. He served in the cabinet for four leaders across multiple regimes. He enacted policy that literally rescued tens of thousands of people. He was put in charge of all the Magi. Do you remember who the Magi were? 600 years after Daniel's death, a group of Magi traveled 800 miles to find a baby who had just been born outside of Jerusalem in this town of Bethlehem to an unwed virgin mother. Why did those Magi show up? I believe because 600 years earlier, Daniel in his nine to five was discipling them what to look for. His legacy lasted. The fruit of his life kept growing generation after generation after generation, but it grew because he understood that he was never the star of the story. And here's the mark of a life well lived in the, in the midst of constant pressure. 
is when you get to the end of your life, everybody around you, although they think you're great, the only one they wanna talk about is the God to whom you serve. If you've ever been to a great funeral, at some point, the praise shifts from praising the person in the coffin to praising the one that will resurrect them out of that coffin one day. And the story turns. And the king sees Daniel, this flower growing on a rocky crag in a tough situation, and he looks at him, and you notice he doesn't say a thing about Daniel. He goes, oh my goodness, your God is living. He is enduring. His kingdom will last and last and last and last and last and last and last. And then there's this mic drop moment at the end of chapter six. It says, and Daniel prospered all through Darius's reign, and then Darius fell, and King Cyrus reigned, and Daniel served all the way through him as well. And it's like the Bible's just saying, hey, listen, the devil is unyielding in his attack on God's people, but if you would stay the course. The devil, the devil will never fail to fail. <laughs> and the Lord will never fail to deliver. And in the face of the social and the vocational and the physical and the generational pressure, Daniel didn't just survive, but he kept thriving. Now, here's the question. We like, Two minutes, then we're gonna take communion together. What's the secret? <laughs> What's the secret? 70 years, this wasn't just like a youthful burst after summer youth camp. <laughs> What's the secret? Look at verse 10. I think here's the secret. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened to Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had, what? read that out loud with me, just as he had done before, just as he had done before. Guys, this dude was so busy. At the beginning of the chapter, we're told he has 120 employees under him as they're trying to steward an entire nation. He wasn't retired on a beach wasn't sitting in a monastery. All of those things were great and wonderful, and I want to be doing both of those things. <laughs> he was in the thick of it. And what's the secret to thriving in the midst of the pressure? If you don't hold on to anything else, I wish I could just tattoo this on your heart. He thrived in the pressure because he prioritized the presence. He thrived in the presence, in the pressure because he prioritized God's presence day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month, minute by minute, year after year, regime after regime. Guys, the great secret to a life well-lived is really not that much of a secret at all. But it feels like a secret because so few of us know how to live into it. And Daniel knew that he could only handle the pressure when everyone was watching if he would commit himself to the Lord when no one was. And day after day after day, I think about one of my dear friends in college. He became a Christian right before our freshman year in college. He's the only Christian in his family. And he's like, I don't know how to live as a witness in my family. And so he just made this decision every afternoon when he'd get done with soccer practice, he'd take 30 minutes to worship the Lord and read the scriptures before he'd eat dinner with his family. So that way he could bring the best of Jesus to his family dinner table. I'm like, what sort of 17 year old does that? I remember when we became friends our freshman year in college, he had this rule every single night when he got done with his job, before he'd go eat dinner with us in the cafeteria, he'd take 30 minutes and he would worship the Lord in his dorm room and he'd pray. And we'd try to talk him out of it. That's the type of friend I was. I'm like, dude, just do it later. Do it in the morning. The Lord doesn't care, you know. Um, aren't you glad you weren't friends with me in college? But, um, but he wouldn't do it. He, he, just, he just kept prioritizing the presence. 
And I look at where he is now in his early 40s, this unbelievable man of God, and I'm just reminded that unbelievable men of God are never built overnight. They're built every night. <laughs> over and over and over and over and over. Think about a young man in our church who came to the States when he was 14 years old because his family was fleeing war, coming from a refugee camp. The Lord got a hold of his heart when he moved to the States and he's like, Lord, how do I keep the fire burning? And he said, get up early when nobody's around and tend to me, tend to the lamp of my presence. And look at this young man who's in his early 20s and who walks with more spiritual authority than most of my friends in their 70s and 80s. And I go, what's the secret? The secret is no secret at all. You stand in the pressure by prioritizing the presence. And guys, and here's the beauty. If you prioritize the presence, you never have to fear the pressure. If you prioritize the presence, you never have to fear the pressure. There's some of you here this morning, you're not followers of Jesus, and I just want to encourage you. All throughout Daniel's biography, king after king after king sees the glory of God, and they give lip service to God, and they admire God. But here's what I want to encourage you on. There's a big difference between admiring God and following God. Big difference between admiring him and worshiping him. Big difference between thinking he's wonderful and surrendering the entirety of your life to him. And in this weird little cultural Christian bubble of Nashville, Tennessee, it's really easy for you to spend your whole life in a place like this and never actually get touched by the saving grace of Jesus. And I just wanna want encourage you to really wrestle with the condition of your soul. And if you have any questions or fears or worries about the condition of your soul, don't take that lightly. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you. I'm not gonna do some big emotional, like make a choice right this second. I want you to ponder it. And then I want you to think about it. And I want you to give your life to picking up the cross and following Jesus forever and ever and ever come hell or high water. Because it'll cost you everything. That's the call. That's the reality. So there's some of you here this morning and your pagans going, I admire Jesus. No, uh -uh. do you follow him? And there's some of you here this morning and you're followers of Jesus, but you've grown accustomed to only flourishing in mild, comfortable environments. And the reality is the world has changed. The culture is getting harsher. And it's time for you to dig deeper roots, for you to draw water from a deeper source. Because God's best for you is not just to survive the desert heat, it's to thrive and to bloom so that when people look at the flower of your life, they go, he is the living God who endures forever and ever and ever, and his kingdom knows no end. And so let's stand together as we get ready to receive the bread and the cup, the declaration of that enduring forever king of kings and kingdom above all kingdoms. Lord Jesus, we love you. And God, I ask that by your grace and by your might, you would help us to be a people that prioritize your presence no matter what comes in such a way that you alone, King Jesus, get glory. Lord, as we receive the bread and the cup this morning, would we not only receive your grace and forgiveness, but would we be rebaptized by your spirit to pick up the call of the cross into the world for your glory and the good of people who don't yet know you. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.